Hello, I'm Katherine Pierce. And I'm Brooke Hayes. We're graduate students at the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. On this podcast, we explore the stories of people working toward the change they want to see in the world through conversations about how they got from hope to here. Our aim is to provide an antidote to the doom and gloom narrative that dominates mainstream media by exploring these stories, and by shining a light on the ways that fellow researchers are taking action and inspiring hope in others. This week, we talked to Alyn Gertz about how citizen science can be used for conservation management and about her research using iNaturalist. Here's Ellie. You might think there's nothing new in a city, um, but there's definitely been new records of like species being found in cities. Maybe there was one in Toronto a while back when they found a new insect. You're like, well, you'd think everything's been found, but it's not true. You just have to kind of look for it. But first, Brooke and I chat about the importance of art and share stories of creative ways art can be used to protect the environment. All right, well, maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, this just introduced the episode and mm-hmm. and maybe share a little something in the what's giving us hope category to kick yeah. us off before we dive into Ellie's interview. Yes, that's a great idea. Yeah, I think even before getting into that, I'd like okay. to maybe just introduce the idea of art and crafting as a major element of addressing the hope gap that we we talked about in one of our early episodes that was described by Anthony Lizerwitz. And I really feel like this is an interesting topic and and creates a bit of opportunity for those you know that are engaging both in the maybe the social social justice side or that might have you know critical um you know access issues to science and literature describing these these opportunities so maybe we should talk a little bit about art as uh, an opportunity to address the hope gap mm-hmm So in class the other day, Ellen had put something up that really struck me. There was a question, can art change how we think about climate change? And then she talked about the role of arts in bringing about deep changes in minds and behaviors that's been so far understated in UN climate panel reports. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't think we often think about art having that role. We often think about just communicating facts and science it relates to some of what we've talked about before about how we are influenced in our beliefs like by our emotions and it's not just facts and so I think art whether it's Mm -hmm. writing like or visual art or all these different forms of art they do hit us emotionally and that can be so much more engaging than reading a list of facts or you know like the scientific information yeah the other the other thing that I really took away was that she was mentioning Anthony Lizeritz's work around the hope gap, right? Remember, we talked about that in one of our earlier episodes. And I think that it was he, he who identified that art is a critical element of addressing the hope gap. Yeah, and I wrote down, I think this came from him, that sort of the key message around climate change was there was a five part. Scientists agree, it's mm. real, it's us, it's bad, and there's hope. Yeah, yeah. And how we communicate that hope is is critical, and especially when it is like this global thing, um, it doesn't just have to be 
science can also be art. The world is wild and wonderful. And there are so many ways of expressing that. And what's so nice is that, you know, we all have our different views on the world. So we can see lots of different perspectives through art that are then open to interpretation by others. Yeah, and I think art does have that power of transcending language in terms of communicating emotion and, you know, providing that, that idea, that, that connection to the human capability. I know for, for those of us that have spent time traveling, you know, in the outdoors or around the world, there is that, that moment of awe when you come across some, some piece of art in a natural setting that has been placed there and tells the story, tells a narrative about that place that, that brings curiosity and, and sort of speaks to others that have come before that has seen this and have created something of beauty to bring inspiration to others. So I think that's a really, a really interesting topic because it's not one we think about when we think about climate change. It's not the place we, we go initially. Art is often an expression of difficult emotions. And it's, it's when, we, when, we, when we struggle to find the words to explain and climate change that we know is creating a lot of eco-anxiety, eco-despair. There is, a, I find it really interesting that we learned that the craft surge that we've seen during the pandemic is the same as what was seen in the time of the major world wars. I didn't know that. And that's why I think it's a really important mechanism for people to to do something with their hands that is meaningful, that addresses this hope gap. I thought that was interesting too. And as a parent who does not have time, it <laughs> reminded me of this uh, meme that just popped up in my Facebook feed from like a year ago that I shared that was like, people without kids are like, oh, what 10 new hobbies should I take up <laughs> now that I have all this time and so parents- unfair. People with kids are like, oh, this five minutes between 10.55 and 11 p.m. has been like so, so great. This 10, five <laughs> minutes I had to myself today. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so, no, that's so good. Yeah, I'm so happy for all the people who are baking bread and making crafts. That sounds so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky us. Oh my gosh, I love it. And yeah, I think it's similar to some examples that, um, you know, there was some specific things that happened even before the pandemic that, that you know, were, were able, you know, from a climate perspective, like the, the wildfires in Australia. Did you want to talk a little bit about that example that we, we learned about in terms of the response to that? Yeah, um, we read a really interesting news article, and it was from about a year ago, I guess a little more than a year ago, January 2020, about people making um, like crafting items to help wild animals that had been displaced by the huge bushfires that happened in Australia back then. And it seems, it seems in a way like a really long time ago when I was thinking about this because it was pre-COVID. But 2020 started out with these huge fires in Australia. And I remember seeing in the news um, some of the stories about animals being rescued and carried out of these areas where there were fires. And in the article, it said that the fires have killed an estimated 500 million animals in Australia. So I think that was between October and January. And, and many more animals were displaced as well. And so 
the article we read was about Canadians who were wanting to help and you know with something that's happening in Australia so on the other side of the world and it was I think it was started by a Canadian here who started knitting and sewing um, like pouches and nests was it nests as well yeah. those yeah. kinds of things yeah. too and koala mittens koala mittens yeah <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> right <laughs> and then this this movement grew and grew and a bunch of other people started joining they had a she started a Facebook group and like Canadians I'm not sure if this spread worldwide as well, or if it was just Canadians that were doing this, but a whole bunch of people started joining in and making all of these items and sending them over to help these animals that had been displaced by the fires. It was just such a touching story. And it really speaks to, I think that human like desire to help Mm -hmm. and not just other humans, but to help Mm -hmm. when we see animals in trouble as well. Yeah, I also really feel like it it speaks to what happens when one person, you know, hope is contagious. Mm-hmm. You have one person start something and then suddenly crafters are united mm-hmm. to take direct action. And there's something really, really encouraging about this idea that, you know, when you see someone doing something right and you, you have this unmet need, this sort of like... Uh, deep pain that needs needs a place to go to have a place to direct that and have that be both art that is you know beautiful and helpful and a part of a community is a really I think that's a really powerful story yes it is absolutely and that makes me think of the other story that we also read this week about the marble statues underwater if you wanted to talk about that Brooke it really it also touches on sort of one person seeing a problem and, yeah. and doing something and then others joining in. Yeah. Yeah. And the broader impact it can have, but in a yeah. local scale, this exactly. was an, yeah, an article from the guardian that was about uh, basically uh, a fisherman in Italy named Paolo Fanciulli. My apologies with the, this uh, pronunciation, but he had been fishing the waters since he was, 13 years old, and he really saw the impact of uh, this trawling fishing that was dragging heavy chains across the sea bottom. And he was really concerned about this because it really destroyed all the natural habitat. And there were even Italian laws that had been put in place to ban trawling within, you know, a certain distance of the coast, but it wasn't actually, it wasn't actually helping. People were still doing it. They were just doing it at night because it was so profitable. And as a form of sort of social protest, he decided to do something really unique, which was that he decided to drop these giant marble sculptures. He used, you know, marble blocks um, that he turned into art and he dropped them on the bottom floor because effectively, if you're trying to, you know, draw a net across the bottom of the ocean and you hit one of these rocks, it sort of destroys your operation. So I was just wondering how it occurred to him to do that, to do that. You know, it seems yeah. like that wouldn't be my first thought if I was thinking like, how do I stop trawlers? I don't think I would think, ah, oh, I should drop a marble statue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they had tried, you know, a number of different ways to try and stop the trawling that was happening. Like they dropped these concrete blocks into the sea, but it wasn't working. And I think that what he saw was an opportunity to, 
you know, really is sort of capitalize on this idea he had from when he was a child, when he was fascinated with the idea of, you know, beautiful art underwater. And he wondered if maybe instead of dropping concrete blocks that are just sort of random on the bottom of the ocean, if he dropped art, what would happen? And so he approached a local uh, quarry to see if they would donate a couple of marble blocks. And I love this. They donated a hundred, wow. <laughs> which is so cool. And then, you know, just because of word of mouth around what he was doing, he was able to persuade, persuade some incredible artists to help to sculpt these marble blocks and drop them into the ocean to act both as a physical barrier to the nets, but also to create this beautiful underwater museum, which I now absolutely have on my bucket list to go and see. Oh, I just I, wouldn't it be incredible to dive down and oh, see those amazing statues? It's yeah, it's oh, it's so cool. Yeah, and you know, and the thing about the impact. So not only has he stopped the trawling in that area and brought you know national attention to this area and this issue, which by the way was a pretty risky thing to do. Apparently, as noted in the article, he was subject to some threats even from the mafia. So oh this was gosh. this is not a this is not a simple or just you know everyone's welcoming this. This is really going up against some established power structures. And, you know, he's now, he's both, you know, stopped some of that, you know, very you know, harmful trawling on the bottom of the ocean. He's also created this beautiful underwater museum that he now takes, you know, tourists out to so they can go in and view these beautiful sculptures. He's created habitats. So there's all sorts of fish that are now returning to that area and wildlife. And he's created a market for these things. So he's able to do you know, local ecologically sustainable harvesting in that area, which he sells at his local restaurant and to local uh, distributors of ecologically and ethical produce. So I really feel like this is such a fantastic example of, you know, someone noticing that there was an issue in their local area, choosing art as a solution to climate change, acting on it, gaining the support of their community with, you know, multiple benefits to the community and the ecosystem. So I find that to be a really hopeful example of, of using this type of practice to address eco-despair and, you know, bridge that hope gap. It is such a great story. I love everything about it. And I think we should include the link in our show notes because oh, I think people are going to want to see the images of these underwater statues. They're yeah. just so, there's something so mesmerizing about it. I would, gosh, I would love to go and yeah. see that for myself. That's so great. I think it really ties in as well to our interview today with Ellie, who is so interested in biodiversity and mm -hmm. uh, different ways to really understand the long-term monitoring of biodiversity in areas. Yes, I think it ties in really nicely. Should we head to the interview, Brooke? Let's do it. See you there. All right. See ya. Helen Gertz is a first-year master's student at the University of Victoria, studying how citizen science biodiversity platforms like iNaturalist can be used for conservation management. Ellie has a strong passion for biodiversity that began when she discovered birdwatching as a child. Her fascination of biodiversity was strengthened by her experiences during her undergraduate and her fieldwork positions. Ellie received her Bachelor of Science in Biology and Statistics at the University of Manitoba in 2018. Since 2015, she's worked on a range of ecology projects, such as studies of aquatic insects, purple martins, plants, mammals, and tropical birds. 
Ellie also enjoys teaching biology as a teacher's assistant and loves showing others the weird and wonderful diversity that the world has to offer. Here's Ellie. Great to have you here today and join us for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Thanks so much, Ellie. We're so glad to have you here. And we wanted to start um, with your vision for a hopeful future. If you can describe for us, I know that can be kind of a challenging thing maybe to imagine, but sort of looking ahead to 10 or 20 or 30 years into the future, what do you hope to see in the world? What do you hope it looks like? Wow, that's considering sometimes I wonder what I'm doing in the next couple of years after my degree. Um, for me, I really, I would love to see more people connected to their environment. So it doesn't have to be really far. It doesn't have to be thinking about the Amazon, but like, you know, in your own backyard, like thinking, oh, what's the birds are doing? What, oh, this flower is coming up earlier. Um, it doesn't always seem the happiest, but like I, I see a positive change where more people are caring about their environment and they're, they're more aware of climate change. And that if you're more, connected to it, the more you want to try to protect it and be more mindful of what your actions have. So like my vision of it, maybe they're just taking it, I guess it's not overall like seeing infrastructure, but they're just being more in the moment. You know, you don't have to rush. You can appreciate what's around you um, because you know, like all oh, this place has this really rare plant or this is really peaceful or really beautiful location and then you want to protect it. So then you're more involved as a community trying to make sure that happens. Um, I feel like there's that disconnect. So like some things we don't, that's happening we don't like is because we're not able to, I don't know. I think you're yeah. articulating it really beautifully. And I love oh. that vision of people being more connected and you know knowing, knowing the flowers that are coming up and when they're coming up. And I think that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks. Yeah, I also really appreciated that idea of being in the moment more with where we are and mm -hmm. taking that time to appreciate it. And I guess that kind of leads us to our next question, which is really, you know, given there are so many topics available to <laughs> choose from these days and, you know, you have a, a very, you have your own path to, to where you are. Really curious to understand, you know, why did you choose this area of study? What what drew you to it? What what makes you excited about it? Um, it's really funny how you brought that up because it's more that I couldn't choose that I wound up here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always really been into like animals and wildlife. I knew in high school I wanted to go into biology and I thought, okay, I know I kind of want to do something in wildlife conservation. I'll figure it out in undergrad. But then it, in undergrad, you get exposed to a lot more opportunities and you realize your narrow vision you had of what you could do is now suddenly broadened to a great array of cool things you could do. Um, so like I took courses on insects, on marine invertebrates, on mammals, birds, and then fish. I was like, oh, but now I don't know what I want to do. I love so many things. <laughs> so I thought, okay, after my undergrad, um, I'll do like field jobs in different habitats, doing different things, then I'll have an idea what I want to research. Um, that didn't help. <laughs> well, maybe it did, but it made me realize that I really just enjoy, 
identifying and like appreciating the diversity around me. That's like, I like, but like who would want to work with me if I'm just like, I, I don't have a specific passion for something. Um, I'll take photos of, you know, a little millipede, but I don't take a photo of a bird. There is no distinction. Um, so I was getting a little stressed um, doing one of my field jobs in Australia thinking, oh, I want to do grad school come fall, but I haven't been able to reach out to advisors as much as I want to, because some jobs when you're in the remote communities, you don't have access to internet, um, which is essential trying to communicate um, with professors via email. Um, but then this wonderful opportunity came up saying they wanted to use this platform called iNaturalist. And it was studying biodiversity in British Columbia and how it can be used for conservation management. So here are these two things I really love, biodiversity and doing a positive impact like conservation. You can like mesh them together. And I also really like statistics and I had a heavy component to it. So I was like, this is perfect. Um, and the supervisor was really lovely and it just really worked out. And so my experience is doing like working on birds, but also like aquatic insects, maybe like realize I really like biodiversity and you don't necessarily need to have that passion of like one specific organism or system or question. You can have kind of an appreciation for anything. That's amazing. Yeah. It sort of like opens up the freedom within that world of biodiversity. Um, not to have to be pigeonholed into one specific area. That's really interesting. Well, there's some I've encountered where they're very much into stakes. Like, oh yeah, I want to do, I want to be a professor in herpetology. Right. He's doing wonderful. He's, yeah. he's, he's getting those goals then. Um, yeah. But then there's others, yeah. And I felt pressured. This is like, oh, I need to come up with something. Like, like I can't, you need to be specialized in something to get hired. But then mm -hmm. coming to the realization, that you don't always need to have that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your project that you're working on now, Ellie? I'm going to be looking at biases or like the data structure of this platform called iNaturalist. So those who may not know about it, it's like the citizen science slash crowdsource online platform where anyone can take a photo or an audio recording of something alive or it can be evidence of something that was alive and upload it and then the community and the computer AI can identify it for you. And then this gets fed into this bigger database of a biodiversity. Yeah, this database of biodiversity that anyone can access and then use for research. Um, the only issue with it is that because it's really open, anyone can upload, there is no protocol on what you observe. So if I just want to take photos of butterflies, that's totally fine. If I just want to take a photo of this one plant day after day as it's blooming, that is totally a-okay as well. Um, but then it creates these interesting patterns in the data that can be a little difficult for scientists to use. So what I'm going to be looking at is how this data is structured to find its limitations. So then with that, it can be then used for modeling for conservation managers. So then they can actually use this data that can help with land planning, it can help with restoration efforts, it can help detect invasive really early on so they can be dealt with before they take hold in protected areas. Um, so iNaturalist has this really great potential to help a lot with like environmental protection. 
um, but it just needs to be studied a bit more before it can be used to its full potential. So that's where my project kind of sits. Could you give us a sense of how many people are using the platform and where it's being used around the world right now? Well, it was developed by two, two master's students, I believe, at the this university in California. I'm forgetting the name of the, the academy, um, but they developed it wanting to like create this interface where the community can now better interact with their environment. So it was a way to be, it was a way about doing environmental conservation with the added benefit of helping science. And it was, I believe it was 2008 when it was like first really like set and developed. It's been gaining a lot of popularity here in Canada. Just in BC now we've reached over a million observations. I believe there's over 200,000 Observer, like observers already now in BC, yeah. but definitely there's like millions of observations across the world. And most of the observations are where there's more densely populated people yeah. and also where people have access to technology. So like Australia has quite a bit, uh, North America has the most observations, but that's probably because it was developed here in North America. So it like started local and now it's like expanding now more across globally. It's not at the same level as eBird, hmm. but it's going to get there, I think. <laughs> so yeah, there are other platforms so. like this, right? So Oh, there's so many platforms. There's, if you really like particular smaller taxon, so if you really like butterflies, I know there's one I think called eButterfly. Hmm. If you like plants, there's eFlora. Um, there's one similar to iNaturalist, I think it was called Zooniverse iNaturalist is really popular here in Canada and I'm focusing right now with Canadian ecosystems. So it makes more sense for me to work um, with iNaturalist, especially since it takes in anything living. It can be fungi, plants, animals. eBird is strictly just birds, but it's really good data. So it's been fantastic for the scientific community. Some of your earlier points around like something that you really care about is biodiversity. And another thing you really care about is conservation and doing something positive around biodiversity. And it sort of feeds into our next question around, you know, there are these major challenges that we're facing and, and solutions like iNaturalist are, are looking to kind of document some of this. So I guess kind of two part question. One is, you know, what gives you hope? Like what is, what is, uh, what is hopeful for you about this work in terms of how this will feed into some specific solutions? And kind of what are those big barriers that you think um, exist that are gonna make this work meaningful in the future? Um, on the nerdy side, it gets me really hopeful seeing the, um, the progression of our like AI systems where they're working even not just with iNaturalist, but working with like camera data where we can automate a lot of data processing. Um, we're coming to this era where there's so much data, but there's not enough people or time to analyze it all. So we can't make the best use of it to know about our environment and make appropriate actions. So it gives me hope seeing like the software development increase. And so we can now better use that data. Um, smaller things. I get really excited seeing kids being excited about nature. There was this one time I was doing a field trip for one of my courses and uh, one of the professors, they brought their, their kids along and they were just, they were way better than I was finding crayfish in the creek and they knew 
the larvae stage of uh, mayflies and stoneflies. They just pick them up and grab like, oh, this is this. And they were very excited about it. Um, so it makes me really hopeful for the next generations. When I see that, it's like, oh, you know, if they're connected and interested about the environment, I'm, if it keeps happening where we're engaging the next generation, I feel like it's gonna improve. Cause like my parents, they like being in nature, but they don't very much know very much around them. Or things I think are very common, like an American robin with their right, really bright red breasts. I've met people who don't know what those are. But now I'm like seeing really young children know what these are. So this really gives me, gives me hope. And then with iNaturalist, it's been increasing, like almost doubling the numbers sometimes, like number of observations and observers on there, which is showing me like a lot of people are getting engaged with citizen science platforms. We're trying to like engage and try to help inform like policymakers and decision makers like oh look this is here or this rare plant here so then it can help it can help inform people so they can put the proper destinations to protect that area and even find new species and then for me how I really got into INAT I was in a remote area in Australia and I took some photos and moths but I didn't really think much of it but then like an expert saw that I was there, I was like, oh, we have like new observations there. Could you take more? So then I upload more. And then this person's like, this is a new species for this state. Like we have like no observations of the species here. And so then you're like going and adding this data to the atlas and you feel really much engaged and like seen and you can feel like you're making a difference. And then if you have more people feeling that way, then you're like, oh. well, it's like working towards that connection to your environment that I'm, I'm leaning towards. And, if it's going in that direction, I feel really hopeful. Ellie, your your passion and your enthusiasm for conservation and environmental protection really comes through. And what I want to ask you, like working in this area when you're thinking about conservation and biodiversity, and we look at sort of Brooke touched on this earlier, the threats that we're facing on a wide scale with biodiversity loss, it can be really overwhelming and especially for people who are really connected to nature and who are working in this field and spending a lot of time. And I wonder, you know, if that's something that you experience and how you look after yourself and sort of balance taking care of your needs with the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, there is a lot of people in this profession and people outside of it as well where they're just they're feeling that burnout where it feels like there's so much going on and it can be really overwhelming it's like is there anything we can do can I have a change maybe it's not the best mechanism but I like to not think about it as much for in terms of like um I can think about it and worry about it but I know I, I can only control my own behavior and like my own actions so I'd rather focus more like okay what can I do that's like a small positive thing working towards you know the future I would like to see so sometimes it's like disconnecting myself from social media and that so I don't always see the negativity just like sometimes like maybe I'll just go outside and I can see that you know it's not all bad it's still really nice out um here in Victoria it's very green so like sometimes I just gotta remind myself that it, the world isn't too bad I guess like small things like like most others, I like to exercise. If I did take my mind off, I love going for hikes. Sometimes you feel that you always need to work because like, you know, there's an emergency. Well, yeah, it's an emergency happening. 
that you should be always doing research or trying to find, trying to improve it. Um, but you can't burn yourself out because then you can't be helpful for people, you know, academia, but even if you're working for government, like honestly, any sector, if you burn yourself out, then you're not, you just, you're not helpful. So I like, I'm able to like take time off a bit with going on hikes, especially if I do it with a friend, because then it feels like, oh, this is like a social thing. I can't just cancel and put it off and do work. It's like I've now made this date. I can go on this hike and I will enjoy it because I'm already on here. So make the best of it and make sure I stay connected so I don't get into a tunnel. Because sometimes if you just you see a lot of negativity, like, you know, maybe I just need to get an outside perspective. I know sometimes I can get in a bit of a tunnel. So I have to make sure I don't do that. And I still keep contact. If I'm like working in a remote camp, I'm still keeping contact with people in my hometown or colleagues that are now in other parts of the world. I feel like at least with the INA community, it's very, for the most part, very positive. Um, so I actually, I'll do that on my downtime to kind of rejuvenate where I'll go and help other people identify things on the website or I go and learn about it. Um, it makes me feel really hopeful to hear how many people are using mm-hmm. these platforms and engaging with nature in this way. I didn't really know much about it at all before hearing about it from you, Ellie, and it, I find it really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Totally. Actually, that sort of takes us to our next question around, you know, where can people find out more about, you know, the work you're doing? And, and if, if you have any links, we can, we can definitely include them in the, in the show notes where people can find them there. Oh. But what, um, where can people go to find out about you and, and the work and a naturalist? I don't have too much about myself with the current project, but the project that I'm affiliated with. So a lot of the data that I'll be working with comes from the BC Parks Project. And then they work with the BC Parks Foundation. So both of these organizations have a lot of information about INAT and how that data is being used and how you can use it. There are lots of really good like infographics that can help you and little step by steps. And then I believe they also have like contacts if you wanted to get some help. I'm working with Dr. Brian Sterzomsky. So his website is also really good to see the kind of work that I'm doing because his approach is a bit bigger. He, uh, he focuses a bit on ecosystem restoration, but he's really now starting to go into biodiversity and iNaturalist. Uh, he's a real avid user of it. <laughs> Often you'll see him around campus with a really big camera, yeah. taking photos of anything around him. It's honestly amazing. I hope to reach his level one day. <laughs> oh. That's great, thank yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure to include some of those links in the show notes so people can find all of those websites. Um, That'd be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We want to close out with a few rapid fire questions. These are just sort of fun, like fill in the blank type questions. If you're game to try. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. I've not tried before. Okay. okay. And yeah, so if you get stuck or if you feel like it's just too personal, you can just pass if you like. But I think for the most part, these are pretty safe questions. Okay. Okay. We'll start with the first one is what's your sign? Oh, Capricorn. Or are you talking about lunar year? Because then it's dog. Ah, perfect. Good. <laughs> it's good to know both. <laughs> Thank you. What book is on your bedside table? Oh, I'm um, currently reading the BC 
Roadside Naturalist. Mm. So it's by the Cannons. So they're really prominent naturalists here in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So it takes you along all the different highways and describes how the geology changes, mm -hmm. the, the tree composition changes, and then a bit of the history. So I've been learning a lot about the province that way. Yeah, very cool. All right. Uh, my favorite place in nature is? Oh man, beside a stream in a forest. I don't know where that is exactly. It can be in a lot of places, but I really love creeks. Hmm. When you think about the environment, what's the first word that comes to mind? Conservation. <laughs> um, but and then I guess climate change. Oh, there's so many words associated, but definitely I think environment, oh, conservation. Definitely would be my first link. That's really good. All right, good. Okay, uh, the world needs more. Oh, naturalists. I just, I think <laughs> this needs more people curious, honestly, because curiosity always often leads to really good things. And if you're curious, you want to, yeah, being curious is the one I would like to see. Yeah, I like that. All right, when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, no. Um, but I was four, I wanted to be a Pokemon trainer. Um, <laughs> quickly learned that's not possible. Um, yeah. And then it's like transitioned to other animal fields, like a pet shop owner or an emu farmer or a vet, you know, <laughs> there was a few. <laughs> I love how you started with Pokemon though. <laughs> It's the gateway. Yeah. <laughs> gateway. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. Do you listen to podcasts? And if you do, what's your favorite podcast right now? Yes, I do a little bit. Um, the one I'm listening to right now and I'm really enjoying is um, Critical Role. It's a and d podcast. Ah, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's just really nice for walks to just listen to a story of voice actors that they're creating. Um, it's a way to kind of disconnect and not think about work. It's really fun. <laughs> All right, last question. If you were an animal, what animal would you be? Oh, I would love to fly, but I really relate to like lions and being a female lion. I just love cats and you can sleep. But then you're also very powerful and then you're kind of the one in charge of the pack. Or wait, the pride. There we go, that's the word. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really do love cats. I really wanted to hear your answer to that one because like you have so many animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have the, the very stereotypical, I love um, cats. Um, I don't know, an insect life seems really harsh, so I don't know if I want to be an insect. I don't live for very long. <laughs> Unless you're a cicada, maybe you can live for a bit. Um, <laughs> I thought you might have some like really obscure animal. <laughs> oh, I wish. I mean, there's so many. There's, well, just beetles alone are 400,000 species. You're like... Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> nice. Well, that really takes us to the end of our questions that we had for you. And maybe one of the ways to close out might be asking, you know, what else would you like us to know? What would you like other people to know about this work and about what gives you hope and maybe a message for people coming into this field? Anything else you'd like people to know? Don't be afraid to ask for help is be one thing. Um, if it's related to ID help, if you wanna know what's around your environment or if you're thinking of doing grad school or if you're thinking getting a job, honestly asking questions, like what's the worst that can happen? They'll just say no. I've definitely been learning a lot on iNaturalist how to ID things. It's 
I have it on my profile saying like, oh, please tell me how, if I messed up or I need to take a photo of a certain thing so you can ID it, let me know. And just always be willing to learn. And take those extra five, 10 minutes on your walk. If you're going somewhere, maybe like it could just be something growing in the sidewalk. Maybe it'd be an insect. You might think there's nothing new in a city, um, but there's definitely been new records of like species being found in cities. Maybe there was one in Toronto a while back where they found a new insect. You're like, well, you'd think everything's been found, but it's not true. You just have to kind of look for it. Ellie, I think you've finally inspired me to go and download iNaturalist <laughs> and get going. <laughs> Please do, and then I can follow you. Yeah. <laughs> you can help me ID all the things because I don't yeah. know what anything is. <laughs> oh, I'm still learning tons. I'm very much used to the prairies and I'm like, oh, the coast is a whole new game here for me. So much yeah. fun. No, it's fabulous. Well, just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for taking the time and so graciously sharing so much information about your work and you know how you're how you're managing you know your own well-being through this process. And we're really excited to see where this project goes and how it evolves over time. And uh, yeah, really just excited to to learn more about this work that you're doing. Aww. Thanks. You guys have been amazing. I really actually enjoyed this so much. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Ellie. It was so great to talk to you today. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we want to say an extra special thank you to our guest, Ellen. If you'd like to learn more about Ellen's work and all of the resources she shared today, you can find links to those in the show notes. And if you'd like to share feedback or connect with us about this episode or anything you've heard on this series, you can reach us at hope to hear at gmail.com. Thanks again and see you soon.